Welcome everyone uh, once again to um, episode two of the Refugee Roads podcast. Uh, today we're with uh, Damian Boselager uh, in his role as a member of parliament. Um, Damian, welcome. We're lucky to have you. Thanks for having me. So Damian, uh, it's always uh, nice to introduce yourself first. Um, so how would you introduce yourself in your own words? Uh, oh God, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, I think very simply put is that I, uh, some time ago I studied philosophy and economics um, and then I worked a bit for a consulting firm uh, doing mostly social and public sector projects and then I went to the US um, to do a master in public administration and then I, I met an Italian and a French woman and then we started a European movement uh, with the aim of basically building the first pan-European party And then um, we ran out of eight countries for that, uh, for the European Parliamentary elections in 2019, and we won one seat out of Germany, and that's the, the seat I'm currently sitting on. It's the shortest I could do. <laughs> So now you're an official member of parliament of the for the European yeah, luckily Union. I'm not, How uh, is luckily that I'm not you? unofficial. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, no, I mean, uh, the, this year has been uh, very interesting. I mean, from the beginning onwards, um, I think we, we basically tried to see how we can best uh, deliver on the promises that we made during the electoral campaign and for me that were three main uh, topics so eu reform and that's why i'm in the constitu constitution committee and work on for example electoral law and um, actually also the spokesperson for the greens in the uh, constitution committee and um, the second one being a more just society and that is the one that i think we will talk about today about uh, you know how can you uh, in my case um, create a european asylum system and uh, also actually new channels for labor migration for because I think you should separate the two, asylum and migration. Um, so I work also on the legal side, on the labor side, if you want, uh, on that. And then as the third big topic, um, you know, how can you create a more sustainable, competitive economy? And there I work very much on digital policy um, and data strategies and uh, cloud servers and all these things. And now, I mean, that was like the, the you know, the onset of what what we plan to do and then, Obviously, a lot of different stuff happened, uh, not the smallest of which the, the health crisis that brought a lot of suffering and, and um, I think yeah, um, also economic downturn at, on, on Europe. And there I'm working very heavily on the recovery and resilience facility, which is basically part of uh, the whole recovery package that is currently being discussed. So I don't know if you heard that, but like there's 750 billion out there to be distributed. And that's what the council is currently discussing. And that's what I'm also working on. You mean next generation EU, it's called, no? Correct. It's called next generation EU. And so we need to make sure that it actually helps the next generation. <laughs> And maybe already us, you know, like, <laughs> will also not be the worst if it's useful. That does sound a very busy schedule. Um, how would you say your, like, a typical day looks like as a member of parliament? 
Um, I think it starts now in these remote times, and it also did before a bit, but not not as regularly uh, with the check-in with my team, um, which is very nice. And we talk what, about what everyone is doing and uh, also a bit about, you know, what kind of public events I have or what kind of events uh, need still preparation. And that's uh, extremely helpful to keep us aligned, especially if we're distant in, in physically. And then... Um, I have either a group meeting where basically the group discuss, discusses about you know what are our priorities, what do we believe is important. Uh, so that's with the green group because I sit with the greens in the European Parliament. I had negotiations actually with the liberals and the greens and the greens made uh, a better offer. And so I'm with them and I'm quite happy there. And um, then I have committee meetings. So that's actually then all the responsible MEPs for, for example, let's say, uh, interior matters, um, like that, that would be, you know, working on uh, rule of law, but also asylum migration. We sit with all the different MEPs of that yeah, who work on this uh, in this committee together and, and discuss and vote also on certain files that would then be passed on to uh, the plenary. And then I have sometimes uh, something that is called a shadow meeting, which I think sounds really cool. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's basically um, just one MEP from each political group. So, for example, one conservative, one social democrat, uh, one liberal, one right wing guy, <laughs> which is mostly guys, and then uh, one um, green and so on, one left, one from the left group. And you uh, sit together and you work on one specific file. Um, so for each of the files, that basically each of the legislation pieces that comes out of the European Parliament, um, they're worked on by this group of these shadows. And so that's a meeting that I have. Okay, but I could go on. And in between, there are thousands of meetings with different people that are either experts that we talk to or interviews or uh, brainstorming with a team and stuff like that. So it, 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 it's definitely a busy day. Yeah, that really sounds like it. Um, I'm wondering uh, to dive a little bit into the topic now. You mentioned a couple of times now that you draw a line between asylum and migration. Could you elaborate a bit further on why is that and what each term means for you? So I, I think it's really important to understand that um, you know uh, Europe is a continent of immigration, um, and I think sometimes if you only look at the asylum side, then you miss that uh, we actually have a lot of um, legal labor migration happening every year that has not so much to do with asylum in itself. And so I just like also to keep a bit more of a positive narrative sometimes um, on, on all these immigrants that are coming to work here and that, uh, you know, um, have a completely different reality from asylum seekers in the beginning, at least. I think that that's something that we should look at. And um, then I think uh, that falls for me more under uh, something I would call probably now labor migration. And then when it comes to an asylum system, I think this is really a, I mean, uh, the fact that something like international asylum law exists is a huge, huge achievement of international law and of, uh, of let's say, of, yeah, of, of, of the international system. And um, it's a, yeah, I think we should treat it as such and also try to then think about, okay, how can we honor this the best? And, and how can we make sure that we have a functioning European asylum system? But they're a bit, um, I would say, they, they face different challenges. And I think it's important to understand the differentiation for both of them. Even though, and that's uh, just on a side note, I, I would be a big fan uh, to potentially think about allowing 
uh, labor migration, or if you want to call it like that, uh, visa requests and visa applications out of the asylum procedures. But that's something um, we can we can talk more in detail. But that's just the the general distinction that I think helps. Yeah, I think Timo, it's good to take note of that and then come back to that uh, in in the later topic block. Um, I was wondering uh, about your personal opinion. So when I think back on uh, 2015, when uh, like the media was just full of all these reports on the refugee crisis and all these people, um, at least that's how they frame it, uh, all these people coming into Europe, um, where were you in your life back then? And uh, what was your opinion on the on the refugee crisis? How was that shaped? So um, I was still like uh, working my normal job. Um, I think, I mean, from what I saw uh, back then, I think I had a feeling that many other people had, and that is that it doesn't make sense whatsoever to see this as a national issue. Um, so like to, to think that Germany or Austria or any country along the way uh, back to Greece or to Italy can um, somehow deal with this alone. I think that that's just a huge misconception that um, was just shown to be wrong, you know, like, uh, and that's for me is, I think, still the most emotional issue of why I think we need a European system for some things. And in this case, definitely for a European asylum system, because I mean, to think that it makes sense to have people traverse by foot um, across the you know the continent and then uh, you know close the borders one by one to, to to stop them from doing it or have situations like in Hungary it just doesn't make any sense yeah and um, how would such a European asylum system in your eyes look like or could look like I'm a, a like a pragmatic federalist I would say so that means that whenever it makes sense to do something on the European level, you should do it on the European level. And that this year is like one specific case where I think it's very obvious. Yeah, you would have to have um, basically the, the chance to apply for European asylum. So wherever you are, it doesn't matter if you, you know, land on a, uh, an airport in Sweden, Stockholm, or if you um, yeah, enter, uh, I don't know, on the island of Lesbos, you should be able to just basically uh, uh, like apply for European asylum and then um, go through the same procedure. And then there should be some form of a uh, like choosing where you want to go or uh, whatever you want to call it, allocation process of um, ensuring that, um, that there's a solidarity between member states. But it should be the same kind of uh, process, the same kind of standards. There shouldn't be any di diverging um, approval rates per country that should be completely standardized in terms of what you like the order of acceptance is but uh, we're quite uh, far away from that at the moment what would be some challenges that uh, that are in the way of achieving such a system uh, basically the the right to grant asylum the asylum procedures themselves are um, a national like a member state competence so um, while we already have the chance to monitor some like the implementation of asylum law and uh, yeah work in ways with it there's neither the competence meaning the uh, the right to do it from a european level nor is there currently actually any european asylum officer would be able to conduct this at this point so there's definitely uh, a step to make a big like a big jump to make from where we currently are to to a fully fledged european asylum system and so we what we are currently doing is trying to figure out what are the right steps to get there 
Um, now, we also are aware that you made a, quite an impactful visit to Lesbos yourself. Um, Timo, I think you had some questions on that one. I was just wondering, so um, if you could tell us a little bit more about kind of your um, your trip uh, to Lesbos and what motivated you to go there and also what experiences you brought back and how they've informed your uh, work as an MEP. So um, I went there because... As I said, like for me, the to work on this topic was always like my idea, but I was never, um, I never actually went to uh, to to like a an, a refugee camp in either you know Malta or uh, or Greece or Italy before because I always thought like I don't know what I can add. In your case, I mean, you're telling the stories, you have uh, a a clear understanding of how you take what you take in and, and bring it uh, back to raise awareness whereas for me before i wasn't really sure what my you know what i would take from it and why i would go and so as soon as i actually became a parliamentarian it made sense for me to go because then i would it would inform my policy decisions but it would also hopefully create the the right motivation to to keep fighting for this because there are actually people there uh, and faces and actual characters and with, with stories and so on. So that was the abstract idea of going there. Um, and then when I was there, I have to say that I uh, was uh, deeply shocked. Um, and I knew, you know why, but like just to, to see how people are living there and uh, very vividly also just, you know, so in a way so close because it really just doesn't take so long to get from brussels to lesbos you know it's like a, a couple of hours from uh, brussels to athens and then another couple of hours from uh, athens to mitilene and then you take a little car and you're there in 20 minutes in, in for example in the moria refugee camp that is always in the news so it's, it's really so close and you see how horrible the living conditions are and how people are being treated and then uh, i don't know I think what was most shocking for me was the fact that um, you see how, how the rea reality is and then you, you talk to the refugees, but you also talk to the helpers and the helpers are the ones that look at you and say, okay, now what are you, what's your plan to make this better? What's your plan to improve the situation for these people here? I mean, you are our representative, so like, uh, I mean, what are you going to do? And then you realize that all these, uh, you know, things you have in the back of your mind, like uh, there's a global uh, pact come, or there's a new European pact coming for uh, migration and asylum that the commission is proposing that the council will then probably discuss and the parliament will discuss and then we will try to come. They don't really matter in that moment so much anymore uh, because they're basically just looking at you as like, and, and saying like, how can you let such a situation continue? How can you like, how can you not scream about it? And how can you, like give us these procedural answers if if you are supposed to help us like fixing this nightmare and so i think for me uh it was i don't know i was silent a lot i think uh, during this time there because i honestly didn't know what to tell people because the answers i had were just insufficient and they still are and that is i think the the thing that um yeah i still have to figure out is uh, how do you work with the fact that um the the situation has been shitty for so long um and also since my short visit that's also more than half a year ago now so like how do you deal with that situation and but keep on fighting for the fact that it needs to be better but also um yeah like 
even though the situation is not urgent, then the, the answers are not really there so fast. So I, I, yeah, that's something I think I have to also just think about and digest it in. I think we can definitely relate to that point where you're being asked um, what you can do. Um, and of course, we're in an entirely different position there as we were um, yeah, students, basically. But what is it that you can really do? What kind of impact uh, can you make um, as an individual, but uh, then again, as uh, also a member of the European Parliament, um, you know, considering the, the politics and uh, all the negotiations and the also controversies around this topic? Uh, so Volt, I'm sorry to go back to this, but it's about like, uh, you know, improving the EU's institutions. Yeah? And that sounds very abstract, but it's extremely necessary, especially when you look at a topic like this, because the the issue is that um, 2015, when the crisis, you know, was in, in uh, under full way, um, the commission actually proposed a new set of, a set of policies that would at least tackle this to a degree. Yeah? The the failed Dublin regulation that uh, says that every country is first responsible, you know, or the first country of entry is responsible for the asylum seekers that basically makes um, Greece and Italy responsible for the majority of the asylum seekers. Like th this stuff should was supposed to be reformed. And there were, I think, seven uh, pieces of legislation that were supposed to be reformed. And then the parliament like was fighting heavily about and over all of these files and the package, but in the end came to an agreement. And then what happened is that the European Council, and in this case, it's actually the interior ministers of all our countries, now 27 member states, um, didn't talk about the issue at some point anymore because it became so toxic that they couldn't even agree on a position on you know what this should look like. So not even uh, you know didn't i mean it, normally it would happen the, what would happen is that the commission proposes something the interior ministers find a position the parliament finds a position and then they all fight and come up with a common position which is then the the law yeah but in this case since the interior ministers couldn't even find a common position the whole process stalled and nothing happened and the suffering just continued and there was no development whatsoever and this is just because of an institutional sorry for the wording but fuck up because there's no for, like there's no way of forcing the council to come to a common position and then engage in this process um going forward and so i think it's really uh, key to understand that uh, what we have to do currently is actually try to build pressure on the ministers of the interior of each of our countries to to force them to actually engage in this process and the the issue here is that um, very often I think people think, okay, the EU cannot align on something, or Brussels is not, uh, you know, not able to align on something. And actually, um, if you see the title that was given to this article that you referred to when I went to uh, to Lesbos and wrote an article that was then published in the Guardian, even they titled the article, but Brussels looks the other way. So that always gives the feeling a bit of, you know, Brussels is doing something that is stopping the European asylum system from happening. But what actually is happening is that Seehofer, in our case in Germany, or like the other interior ministers are stopping. So it's like really our national capitals who are, who are blocking this. Okay, so but to answer very quickly what I can do, obviously try to uh, keep the issue on the agenda, um, try to, which I also did right after I went to, to Nesbos, uh, basically build pressure on the interior ministers. And so I wrote a letter with a lot of MEPs uh, signed by really uh, over 100 MEPs 
trying to um, yeah push them and then once we finally get to the uh, to the negotiations then obviously try to fight in detail for the right legislation to to come about sorry it was a long answer <laughs> no this is very this is very clear and i think very helpful i i mean one of the things that we're also trying to do with these podcasts is to really break down some of the politics that you engage uh, in for a non-technical audience so i think kind of uh, you know you explaining this in, in this way is really uh, it's very accessible so that's exactly what we're hoping our audiences will um, yeah will get so thanks yeah um you mentioned now in uh, in your long answer you mentioned that um you wrote an article for the guardian and that kind of the topic is out of the the public eye a bit um why do you think is that the case since the number of arrivals i mean especially in the last year are almost close to what they've uh, been to in 2015 so i'm not yet uh, an expert for you know what catches the public's eye or not i'm like I should probably be, but like, uh, I think they're just, uh, yeah, people can hear the story only so often. I was in the public eye a bit before Christmas when the refugee children were mentioned, for example, at, again, in the German landscape. Um, there, it was in the public eye a bit um, when Turkey opened its borders. I don't know if you remember that, but in March, um, uh, Turkey was actually trying to use the refugee. Uh, yeah, rising refugee numbers as a means to build pressure on Europe. And so uh, there was an increase of, of um, yeah, uh, basically incoming people in, in, in Greece, which led to a rather harsh reaction by the Greek government closing the borders and the EU, or not the EU, to be precise, the, the commission president saying, yeah, Greece, you're so cool, you're the shield of Europe, which is really a horrible kind of metaphor. And then... Um, there was an increase a bit also, or we at least tried to increase uh, the the notoriety of the of the subject um, when COVID nineteen hit, and when it was clear that it would be an absolute nightmare if uh, the virus hit any of these camps. Yeah? Because I mean, you can imagine there are twenty thousand people living in Moria, so um, they use uh, I think uh, I don't know almost three hundred people use one toilet, or two hundred people use one toilet, and. Uh, around 600 people use the same shower so and i think around a thousand people the same water supply um so i mean if if the virus hits and i think we can still say hits any of these um bigger camps there will be a humanitarian catastrophe there's already a humanitarian catastrophe but it will be an absolute like nightmare and so um there was a or there's a strong campaign by eric markward which is called leave no one behind Yes, we've seen that. Yeah, and so that that, that caught on, luckily. Um, and so I think that was also a bit of a topic. At the moment, I actually hear from the commission that they're trying to not bring the topic too much on the agenda because they want to get through this uh, recovery package and that for them is controversial enough. So they say, like, look, we currently need all the member states to agree that for the first time ever we issue common debt uh, so we can't now also annoy them with a new pact on migrants and refugees. I th this is exactly, so we have a few more questions on the politics and this is exactly uh, what we want to discuss, but I just want to spend maybe uh, two, three minutes again on your uh, trip to Lesbos. Um, you, I mean, you said you saw the overcrowded camps in Moria um, and I assume you got access as well, right? Because uh, obviously it's difficult to actually get into Moria um, for journalists and others. 
Um, what what are some of the things that you you would say? Yeah, well, hit you the hardest. I don't know if that's the right word, but where you would say that's something that you could at least fix. Like that's not beyond the bounds of what's possible. You know. So um, I don't know actually what I can say. What the hardest thing is? I mean the the fact that you your day is filled with uh, queuing for food uh, in the morning and midday in the afternoon um, could be for up to three hours and then um, the evening is really trying to you know keep yourself safe and and keep your family safe if you're there with one um, and and warm because it's all cold and you uh, yeah live between thousands of people um yeah i, I don't know like the, the the fact that this is actually happening and that they're people there who try to talk to you and who have uh, a story to tell is absolutely uh, horrifying. I mean, I also talked to some of the community leaders. Um, so some, uh, you know, the, the camp is organized in a way that they have uh, Nash, like community leaders for different nations or for certain groups with the same background. And I, I talked to one woman who was, I think, 21 uh, back then and who started her trip when she was under 18. Um, and she, uh, yeah, I mean, she told me about the fact that how the hospitals are over or the one hospital actually in Mytilene is overcrowded and how actually a lot of the people who are coming, um, already have uh, a certain condition, health condition when they arrive. Um, I mean, I talked to the psychologists, um, who, uh, explain how encampment itself is, uh, um, basically psychologically damaging or traumatizing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that the, the range of issues is so broad that it's really all of it is like <laughs> unbearable and shocking. So I, I don't know which one exactly I would tackle. I think what I saw in terms of positive things are um, obviously the the vilified NGO community who's always like the NGO community. And if you then talk to people, it's just obviously normal um uh, decent human beings actually not only from Europe but also from further abroad who are just drawn uh, there to help um, and to do different things and so like I mean three examples that I really like were uh, the legal services so there's a NGO called, NGO called Phoenix um, which tries to basically show um, immigrants or like asylum seekers what kind of rights they have um, for example for family reunification and these issues so if you have someone living in, in Germany or so or another member state and then you can actually apply for family reunification they help them with that um, but also movement on the ground who organized uh, the camp in a better way so basically they bought some of the land around the official Moria camp and just um, organized tents uh, and built nice tents in some form of a an actual kind of living situation which is bearable and also set up a process so that people don't have to queue anymore for three hours for their food and so on and so that was actually like a positive thing and i talked to them recently and they're expanding a bit uh, their work and then the last one and that also shocked me actually two months ago and i'll tell you why is that uh, there was a, a really cool ngo that uh, i think it's called one happy family and they basically bundled around 100 NGOs together in a, in a space outside Moria where they um, just did fun activities and learning activities with people. So from basically planting uh, your own vegetables to like a kindergarten to um, 
like a cinema in the evening um, to building your own bike and all this kind of stuff. Um, they, they hosted basically all of this in a, in a common space and had a structure to make this work and also gave one lunch out per, per day so that people could actually stay there over the day if they wanted. And I saw actually all of, all of the asylum seekers never as happy as in this place. Uh, but two months ago, I heard that in the height of, you know, the increase of asylum seekers, again, there was also a lot of, um, yeah, right-wing violence, uh, potentially driven by people who don't actually originally come from Lesbos. And so what happened is that also one happy family uh, was actually burned down in, in these protests, or at least that's what uh, was suspected. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, all these names that you mentioned are from the NGOs. They they resonate with us. We actually, um, when we were back there in 2019, we also got the chance to to speak with the people from Movement on the Ground about the incredible things they're doing there, uh, and that uh, that fire that you just mentioned actually popped up on our Facebook screen as well because um, we still had a few contacts there. Um, I was wondering so how all these encounters that you've had so the positive and the negative things that you saw um on in moria and on lesbos um how is that informing your work now like has your approach as an mep changed since you went to lesbos so i think um uh, i learned that uh, for you know for parliamentarians a lot is about actually making your point in meetings <laughs> and that can be committee meetings as i said or shadow meetings or group meetings or uh, even in the plenary seating and there I obviously speak now with a lot more uh, vigor about uh, a topic that now I actually have seen personally and there cannot be um, you know there's a lot of lingua legalistic or you know legal kind of wording around everything and then at some point the word humanitarian crisis is overused and so on and so it seems like there's a lot of words built between uh, you know you and what's actually happening on the ground and so for me to have that actual connection to towards what what is happening um also via the context that, that i still have with the people um is is extremely helpful to uh, yeah i mean i think make my uh, make it a bit more honest uh, honestly um in, in my view and also to to keep uh, up the energy to try to push for it Thanks so much. We actually, um, one thing we're introducing for our uh, upcoming podcast is sort of a Q&A um, with our community. So in advance, we ask them if they have any questions and um, uh, for you as the speaker. Um, and usually we ask for short questions to get short answers, but uh, that doesn't always work out. It's an intricate topic. Anyway, so I'll ask some of these. And um, I mean, again, some of these also may, you know, not necessarily something you focus on right away, but um would be still interesting to your opinions on that um for instance one question we got was um well the pandemic has obviously changed a lot of things and uh, the question was where do you see COVID 19 um having had strong effects on asylum uh, and protection systems in europe and especially how that might have influenced discussions or negotiations on um, also the budget of the eu I know that some countries actually reacted quite uh, cool and um, granted, uh, you know, access to healthcare and uh, almost like equaling citizen rights to a lot of migrants and refugees uh, during the crisis. So Italy, Portugal, I think Spain did some really cool stuff in that direction to help people who were, could obviously also be harmed uh, and are more vulnerable to be harmed by the 
by the virus. And so that was a very positive thing. Um, but I think overall, as I said, for me, the, the big issue was that we accepted that there are 20,000 people living in, in very dangerous conditions when it comes to, um, to such a virus because there's no chance to isolate yourself. There's no chance to uh, follow basic you know, social distancing or, you know, wash your hands kind of rules if, if you live in such a, such a setting. So the fact that we just basically accepted that and didn't change much uh, was quite, uh, yeah, quite a horrifying effect for me from of, of the COVID-19 crisis. In terms of budget, um, I have to look at the latest MFF proposal, but I don't think it changed much in terms of, so MFF is basically the seven year budget framework, if you want, of, of the European Union, um, and that is currently being negotiated. And I don't think there was much of a change due to uh, the Corona crisis, but I would have to check that again. Um, so I think I, I'm not sure it actually uh, affected the budget, but what it, what it did affect, and I uh, told you about this earlier, is that we were supposed to uh, actually start negotiating the new pact for uh, asylum and migration already in the beginning of this um, of the spring so more towards uh, i mean february april march yeah what is it march <laughs> april i can't uh, talk yeah. the <laughs> list of months anymore so very very march and april and yeah, <laughs> it's a long day and then um now we are still stuck with not having a new proposal and as i said like won't have one before the summer and probably also not before uh, winter. So um, that's quite, or potentially not before the winter. So that's, that's quite uh, a delay uh, due to COVID. So I hope that uh, this um, yeah, is not too negative. Let's see. Another question we got uh, from our audience. Um, so this is from someone who was also in Camp Moria himself before, and uh, he was wondering, uh, you mentioned the inhumane conditions now in length. So he was wondering, uh, why is it so hard to build refugee camps with uh, reasonable and humane treatment on uh, European ground? That's a very good question. <laughs> no, but like the, I mean, I know the UNHCR can do it, yeah? but UNHCR is on something called a light foot um, engagement in Greece because obviously uh, the EU and also certain member states don't want to accept that um you know we have fully fledged refugee camps on european soil even though that's obviously the case uh, they don't want to accept that and so they don't give uh, the, uh, the unhcr the mandate to actually build a fully fledged refugee camp so the only thing that the eu is currently doing is transferring money to uh, greece where the earmarking saying like use this to to build camps or to do whatever and then the greece the greek government um uses his money as it uh, seems fit yeah? or like basically requests his money as it seems fit um but i think it's an insufficient answer so uh, i think we have to also accept that potentially somewhere some people are also not unhappy if the situation in these camps is shitty um and so it stops other people from coming yeah? i mean just to give you one example the lockdown measures have now been lifted for eu citizens um also living on the on the Greek islands, but it's still in place. They're still in place for the refugee camps. And you can say that's maybe because they live in more vulnerable conditions, but it's also potentially because it's uh, quite convenient if you can just tell them to uh, be yeah, semi-contained, semi 
imprisoned into the camps um, at, at this point so that they tell everyone who's coming or who is considering to come, look, the situation here is really bad. It's a bit of a deterrence uh, strategy that is, I think, covertly happening here. I mean, one of the solutions that the EU seems to be looking at increasingly is uh, resettlement or I'm not sure if we could call it a solution, but at least one of the legal pathways. Um, and um, yeah, one question we received on that is where you see the EU going in terms of accepting children from Lesbos, because uh, that person comes from the Netherlands and said that in the Netherlands they recently... Um, rejected uh, doing so whereas other member states have done it and what the parliament can you know exert in terms of pressure on member states to engage in this we've been trying to push the commissioner uh, who's actually called johansson from sweden um but is the eu commissioner for these topics um we have tried to push her a lot and i think she's actually also trying to push the member states again to accept um, children yeah um so I don't know if you remember, there was a pledge in the beginning of this year to accept 1,500 uh, kids from um, yeah, who live in these dire conditions, um, but they had to fulfill certain criteria, but whatever, which was already like a start. And then everything was delayed just um, because it was delayed out of no reason. And then COVID came and then it was completely delayed. But then they started actually resettling some children. Um, and the numbers were just ridiculous or are just ridiculous. And so I'm very happy for every you know child that, that was resettled. But in the beginning, I remember that Germany said, okay, we're going to resettle 50 now. And Luxembourg, I think, said 12 or 14 or 16 or something. So really low numbers of, of, of resettled children. If you think about how big these countries are, I mean, um, or how, how uh, many people live in the camps in dire conditions and that there are not only children there. So... I think it's really insufficient and we should um, try to push uh, basically for a European solution. The issue is that um, you have on the one side a lot of cities actually and regions who said that they would be super happy to welcome a lot of children or a lot of actually asylum seekers, not only children. Um, but then the national level really blocks and I think they do it out of fear for right-wing movements in their countries. But it's really horrible, and the Netherlands is doing it. The Germ but Germany is also not the most progressive when it comes to that. And uh, I've been to to Sweden, and there they say, look, it's not our responsibility. There's a system in place. It's not about you know breaking the system and randomly uh, allocating people across um, the continent. That's not our. It's not even our mandate under the law, so we can't do that. Yeah, it's very interesting indeed. That uh, of course, when you look at a smaller scale, like cities and regions might have different views than the, the national government yeah um but the but the acceptance potential is if you want to call it like that is so the the amount of people who would be welcomed by these communes and, and, and cities is so much higher than the people who are currently in need that it's ridiculous that you don't match the two you know like it's absolutely a joke a cruel joke um yeah there we have uh, another question that is um well it's a hard-hitting one <laughs> um so uh this um, audience member wants to know uh, regarding the pullbacks to Libya, assuming that uh, members of parliament are aware that this is um, violating the non-refoulement principle, if, um, they, if there's anything they can do about it or if there are any particular comments you hold or views you hold um, on, um, on that particular issue. Yeah, I mean, I think what's absolutely clear is that uh, there are multiple 
uh, laws uh, being breached yeah? uh, when you talk about the pushbacks. Um, so, I mean, there's maritime law that is being breached very often when you see that, uh, you know, boats are being pushed back into uh, other maritime waters. Um, I mean, there is, the, the, as I said, the international and European asylum law being breached, even national asylum law being breached. So there's really like a lot of... Uh, uh, non-compliance here and that's something that we have to look into uh, as much as we can also we will push the commission to always look into this and we will ask official questions and we try to bring awareness to this and open also procedural you know uh, consequences as much as we can i mean you can uh, push for opening of procedures from the commission versus a certain member state but that um I think doesn't help as long as if you know this is somehow tolerated by all the other member states again. So we need to somehow ensure that um, we set up a system very soon that that, that doesn't allow this. Um, I mean, it's funny, not funny, but like IOM, um, the UNHCR, and all these um, organizations basically tell the EU that this is not okay and that we are breaking laws here. So. We have definitely seen an increase and we need to ensure that um, we investigate as much as possible what's going on. We allow journalists to come, we create a, a solidarity of relocation, uh, like, a, like a system of a relocation and, yeah, and, and, and stop what's going on there right now. Yeah, I think we touched on a lot of uh, points. It's very interesting to hear your views on this, uh, especially since you have also that uh, on the ground experience a bit. So. Um, one thing maybe to wrap up the kind of the politics <laughs> block is, uh, I mean, what uh, changes do you see in the coming few months, particularly uh, considering that the Germans are taking the presidency? And if, you know, I, I don't know if you have any particular connection there now um, to, to that, but um, yeah, is there anything that we could look forward to also perhaps positively? Yes, I, I think as soon as the... Um, new pack can be proposed and that, that's why I hope that maybe we can come to an agreement with a, a recovery package next generation EU thing quite soon so that we can then focus on this issue within the German presidency I think that's really a key I know that the Germans even though I was criticizing them a lot sometimes um, are actually pushing for the right things uh, I would never say that to the, to the personally maybe but like <laughs> there, there are elements where they're a bit more open um, and so I hope that on the asylum side, we we, uh, we can make some progress there. And I think it's really about being honest in, in, in the conversations that you have. So I think one thing that shocked me a bit in the beginning was that, um, you know, you would talk to some people and they would say, yeah, it's only Greece's uh, responsibility under the law. So like, we should really give some money to Greece. And then you say like, look, you, you know that this doesn't work this way. And, and then they say, like, okay, if you say so, then they say, okay, but yeah, we should really, you know, push people back into Turkey. And then you say like, look, uh, you know how many, how few people have, even if you think that this is a good idea, you know that almost no one has been returned to Turkey under the EU-Turkey agreement. So um, yeah, anyways, I, I'm diverging, but I hope that the, uh, that the German presidency can tackle this issue and not only on asylum but also on labor migration because I think if we can change the narrative to go away from only you know looking as foreigners who want to come here using our asylum system or whatever and you also talk about essential workers during the COVID-19 crisis about the aging society about you know lack of uh, of, of support in many areas I think that could 
potentially also be positive for the narrative. And I think Germany is quite open to talk more about labor migration. That's very interesting. And uh, yeah, of course, uh, there's a whole another dimension which we aren't discussing right now, partly because it's refugee roads, but um, that's a very good point. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. thanks uh, for answering these questions from the audience. Um, if you are listening to this and you also want to ask one of our future guests, uh, just send us a message um, or click the, on the Anchor FM uh, button in the show notes. Um, and then you can even leave a voice note, which we'll then ask to our future guests. Now, that being said, um, while I was listening to your answers, Damien, um, I came up with one more question myself. Um, so it seems to be that the common theme of, of what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that behind the, the, the situation of refugees on the ground of the European Union um, is a lot of politics. Um, so would you then say that the refugee crisis is much rather a, a crisis of political will in itself? I think it's a um, a crisis of um, institutions. To be honest, I think we have really seen that we get to um, yeah, like to a certain limit if we have potential like politically very hot topics, we are not able to act fast enough in the EU, and that's just a problem because we haven't set up the right processes for that. If we had a normal decision making process like any other national government we would be able to take one or the other decision and then, you know, there would be elections and people would be unhappy about it. I mean, Merkel, for example, took a decision in the past in 2015 when it came to it and then people were unhappy and left her party or whatever and, and then the situation changed. Maybe she won some people, you know, but there was action. Something happened. And the issue on the on the EU level currently is that the capital, so the national members, like the member states can actually stop action and the worst thing i think for any uh, situation like this like a crisis like this but also for the eu as a whole is this uh, inability to decide an inability to act which actually leads to suffering and and death and that's i think something that we need to solve urgently and how do you think so when uh, you would have to give a message to citizens or even let's hope that actually zehofer comes and listens to this podcast um, yeah, uh, not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> He's currently very busy uh, suing someone. Huh? Yeah, he is. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, like what? What would you tell them? Like, what you, would you say? Hey, look, like, what is something that um, you can do, or, or what should they know about the the entire situation? To be honest, like, I, I think that the one thing that um, my story taught uh, me is that um, politics do matter, you know, like I'm maybe I'm just, you know, one little small MEP among uh, more than 700. But I but I'm here because a lot of people took action and, and decided to run a crazy campaign for a pan-European party that didn't exist before. And the message I have for everyone who's listening is like, your local, I don't know, Greens, uh, Social Democrats, um, whatever party you want to join would be probably super happy and would probably, you know, be very much open to bring in or like to accept your inputs and to, to give you a chance to do what you want to do in, in, in politics if you, um, if you decided to join. So it's really, I think it's really important to understand that 
it actually matters whether we are engaging in politics and also, yes, boring political parties because they are still how we take political decisions. So if something annoys us and uh, makes us uh, sad and uh, am angry, then we should use this to, to channel it into political parties and try to uh, make them better. Because if we don't, um, then you have a system that runs, you know, next to you and you think you have no influence on it. And I think that's negative because we do actually have an influence. And so we should take that chance and responsibility and not not only stand on the streets but also try to overrun parties themselves and just kind of create change from from within i guess yes i fully agree um now that that being said um i you mentioned the pan-european movement that uh, you guys uh, yeah like really founded um uh, like three or four years ago um, how did that come about and uh, how do you see that role of the pan-european movement inside of the uh, of yeah making a change in the refugee crisis how did it come about i mean uh, very shortly um because we we spoke already a while and i don't want to bore everyone <laughs> with the story too much <laughs> but but uh, i mean very shortly uh, we were um, in the States, like Andrea, this Italian guy, and Colomb, a French woman. And um, it was the time of, you know, the Brexit referendum had just happened. And then um, there was also the election campaign of Hillary Clinton versus Trump. Um, and so this all gave us a bit of a feeling of, okay, it's quite weird where politics is going, that, you know, uh, one of the member states of the EU would leave and that this uh, maniac seems to be, to at least have a chance. And then uh, we were actually in the election campaign center of uh, Hillary Clinton and the John Javits Center in New York. And I remember being there and like everybody was, you know, celebrating for Hillary Clinton to win. Katy Perry was on the stage and um, uh, the Bishop of New York was giving a speech. And then suddenly it became more silent. The, the stage went empty. And then uh, like after a while, people looked at these monitors and understood that, we, that, that Hillary Clinton is actually losing this election. And that was for me also, again, like uh, quite a big, big wake-up call that politics can go uh, really in a wrong way and then um, I mean it was really Andrea who said I'm going to build an Italian party and then somehow we ended up uh, thinking it's a good idea to build a European movement to be able to tackle these issues and I think it makes sense because also this refugee issue you can really see that uh, national debates and national answers really are not sufficient. The, the challenges we currently have, uh, be it COVID or the asylum topic or like, uh, I don't know, the energy transition and, and sustainability and, and climate change and so on. These are all topics that go way beyond our national borders. And uh, it's just idiotic to think that it makes sense to return only to an, you know, a nation state kind of system um, as, as our dear right-wing populist friends think it makes sense to proclaim who would have thought that there uh, actually some good things also that came from that election so it's very nice to hear that that's what sparked yeah. your initial uh, yeah your motor no it was definitely this this feeling of um being extremely unhappy about something but wanting to not complain too much but actually do something about it and i think that's also similar to uh, what i hear you guys have been doing you know trying to actually take an issue that is emotionally quite hard and and that uh, yeah looks at the reality of how some people are really suffering on uh, here in europe um, and, and and makes this uh, tries to put this into good use you know and i think that's actually the the constructive spirit that we need that we don't ever 
think about only because this was now a negative conversation or like you know the the, the the issue is horrible that we should then think okay we just sit back and we can't do anything about it but that we try to do something and i mean i was just showing one way with actually getting active in politics and i think i hope that yeah that everybody can see that this actually works uh, with the example that that we have done but um, that you can do also in other parties or you just found a new one or whatever but i think it's really important to not think that you're powerless because you actually have a lot of power with already 10 people in um any of the bigger parties in i don't know uh, berlin mitte even or so on you would you would be quite a big group in a local party uh, committee you know what i mean like it's mm. it actually matters a lot you can you can have uh, a lot of influence Does that mean when you're looking into the future, like when we would say we'll speak again in, in three years, are you positive that uh, change is possible and that change will happen? Um, yes, I think I, I'm positive. To be honest, uh, even though while you know COVID-19 had rather negative um, consequences for, I mean, for people by uh, leading to to disease and, and, and death and, um, and economic suffering, I there is a positive uh, side to to this crisis as well which is that people i think are waking up to the fact that we have to work together more and so i hope this will this kind of spirit of um the the need for cooperation and collaboration will increase i mean if you listen carefully to what macron and merkel for example said when they proposed uh, their version of the recovery package they said okay we also need to think about institution changes and once i think we can solve the institutional changes we can actually solve more topics like asylum and migration but also like integration and many other topics that, that are really important in, in this field because we have a functioning system um so i hope that this uh, that we can get there slowly and i'm always hopeful and i think it's it's open it can go either way but if many people try to push it one way then hopefully it will will go the way we want to Uh, thank you for these, uh, yeah, for this message of hope in the end. Um, and also thank you so much for uh, almost spending a whole hour with us, uh, taking the time out of your day. I really do appreciate it. I learned a lot um, hearing your views on this topic. As Florian said, thanks so much for taking a whole hour out. Uh, we really appreciate it. And um, we'll definitely let you know when the podcast is out there. And yeah. Thank you for the good questions and for your work. I think it's really cool.